Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host Dale and uh, today it's going to be a great day. So uh, I'm finally, finally after, it's been about a year since I started uh, this, but I'm finally in the position where I can start posting up shows on my series about the existence of God. And uh, t today's show, I know it's, um, you know, I, I had a couple of, I had a few major setbacks that, uh, you know, delayed me for, for that year. Um, and, and I'm just now starting to get caught up on that. So I wanted to start by posting up part one. My, my plan of action is to post this in four to five parts. So part one will cover, uh, part one and two will cover my uh, first uh, premise for my cosmological argument. And uh, part three will cover premise number two. Part four will cover uh, premise, the final premise, premise number three of, of my cosmological argument. Uh, but uh, as soon as I post up part one, my next thing to do before I get into part two, um, I want to do uh, an excursus post uh, for Chris Day because uh, in our show on Calvinism, we were talking about uh, the nature of time. Is it an A theory, B theory, or is there this hyper time dimension and that sort of thing? Um, so even though the, that question and where, what is God's relationship to time? And so in doing uh, this show for the cosmological argument, I, I present in part one arguments for the A theory of time in terms of creation. Um, but that doesn't address Chris Date's question about, well, what about God? Is he in time? Is he timeless? Is he in a hyper time dimension? Um, so that's what the, ex I'm going to do a, a bonus excursus show outside of the cosmological argument, kind of an addendum show, addressing the nature of, of God's relationship to time, uh, just, just for his sake there. So, yeah, uh, so I'm very sorry. Sorry about the delay. Um, a, a lot of this is going to be incorporating elements that I pre-recorded back when I was on SNS a year ago and, and was working on the cosmological argument back then. Uh, so some some bits of these are going to be already pre-recorded, and I'm you know splicing them into new stuff. Um, so so yeah. With that said, enjoy the show, guys. Uh, take care. All right. Well, hello and welcome back to uh, Dale's study session. Um, we're wanting to do a solo episode here on a new locus of study, studying the uh, existence of God uh, and whether we can prove that in fact God exists. Um, so in this episode, this is going to be a standalone episode where we focus in particular on one uh, argu argument that I think is successful in proving that God exists, or rather that um, what I call the God, quote-unquote, God-final hypothesis is true. When I say God-final, I basically mean that we can argue for the existence of what we call a being, of what we call God, that has the cumulative combined total of all provable attributes, which are consistent with either the, to which comprise either the entire set, or at the very least a consistent subset of the combined traditional attributes of God proper, you know, God, God the actual being God. And typically when we're arguing for this, um, we look to both the positive and negative evidences. So the positive evidence is for the existence of such a God or the truth of the God final hypothesis and negative evidence is against the truth of such a God, that such a, a God doesn't exist and or that the God final hypothesis is false. So what we're going to do, um, as, as I do with all um, 
my studies of, of religious matters is, okay, we're breaking things up into the positive and negative evidences. Um, so you'll we'll lay bare all of the factors that go into my final uh, conclusion on the truth of the God final hypothesis uh, and or the existence of God uh, and or the possibly the Christian God. Because remember, the God final hypothesis is a minimal definition. So so long as it's consistent and compatible with any other additional attributes, even going as far as attributes specific to the Christian God, such as he's a trinity or you know, he took on a human nature in the incarnation or died for our sins, whatever. As long, as long as those attributes are consistent and compatible with the God final, the God final hypothesis is a minimal definition and is able to incorporate them. Um, however, the, the point I wanted to say is once we're done, so we're going to look at the positive and negative evidence factors or evidences and arguments. And again, I'm going to assign my normative probability values, subjective normative probability values to each of those factors or evidences, and then plug those into Bayes' theorem to get the overall combined or cumulative total uh, as to the truth of the God final hypothesis. So what, weighing the positive and negative evidences, does it come out more probable than not that the God final hypothesis is in fact true? And therefore, God exists, or, or at the very least, we've proven a subset of God's properties and attributes are true. Uh, so that's the goal here. Now, when looking at positive evidences, I sort of take the categorization of there are at least four main categories of positive evidences that we can look at. So the first are subjective evidences via a, a properly basic belief that God exists or that the God final hypothesis is true, you know, via the witness of the whole, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, a testimonial model that produces this properly basic belief, or uh, some kind of God-given or God-created divine sense in our spirit of our souls, um, or a cognitive faculty of some sort that that's called a divine sense, where we can just know God exists in this direct, intuitive way via this subjective evidence of a properly basic belief. The second uh, avenue is through objective evidences. So this is really the task of what's called natural theology, where we come up with various philosophical arguments, employing scientific and historical or other evidences and that sort of thing to argue objectively that God does in fact exist. And I like deductive versions of the argument because I think that's the best way to argue um, you know, you have to lay out your premises, it has to be logically valid, uh, committing no formal or informal fallacies, and the premises have to be logically sound, more probably, proven to be more probably true than not, in order for the argument to be successful. And, and I think this is the best way to argue, because it, it gets everything out in the open, uh, it lays bare everything, you can't have any hidden assumptions, you have to provide your warrant or reasons for the premises, and people can evaluate uh, each of the premises for themselves and your reasons for thinking that the premises are true or not. Um, so I think this is the best way to argue. And in that regard, I think there are, I agree with, I think it was Immanuel Kant that gave about three classifications or main categories of objective evidence. So in the first place, there are cosmological arguments. And the, the categorization is based on the form of argumentation, how you arrive at the conclusion God exists. And as I said, the first are cosmological arguments. And, and this really looks to trying to argue God based on some sort of feature or phenomena of the universe or, and or reality, and then argues that God must 
exist as a first cause and or an ultimate explanation for that phenomena or feature of the universe. The second main category are teleological arguments uh, from the Greek teleos, meaning end purpose or end goal. Um, so these are typically design arguments, like the fine-tuning arguments, uh, or there are intelligent design arguments against evolution and that sort of thing. Basically, you'd look at one phenomena or feature about the universe and existence, and or existence, um, sorry, and or reality, and then you argue that that feature implies uh, design, that there's intelligent design, and therefore an intelligent designer, i.e. God. And there are various versions of that um, based on different phenomena, such as God's providence, um, or you could argue based on the fine-tuning of the universe, the laws of nature, the constants, and the initial conditions. Um, or as I said, you can look narrower, the fine-tuning of the solar system or galaxy, or even species, which is you know, William Paley argued um, that species were intelligently designed. Obviously, we now know uh, that's that argument has been falsified scientifically through Charles Darwin's theory. Um, but still, there are intelligent design proponents that at a higher level, um, we can argue for intelligent design um, and create a teleological argument at the level of families or genus, perhaps, or that sort of thing. And Michael Behe and William Dembski do that. Then the final category of positive evidence, objective evidences, are ontological arguments. Uh, so we have, you know, going back to St. Anselm, or, or we have modal ontological arguments, which I like to use and I think are the most powerful objective evidences that we have. Then turning to the negative evidences side, again, we have four categories, so it's totally even. Four positive categories, four negative evidence categories. And the first category here is based on the internal logical incoherence or inconsistency of the cons the very concept of God. So God has these various attributes such as um, being omnipotent or omniscient and you know omnibenevolent and that sort of thing. And, and they'll say you can either argue that one or more of these attributes in isolation are logically incoherent in some way you know, to try and argue omniscience is logically incoherent. A god couldn't be omniscient uh, because somehow that's logically incoherent. And or by saying that uh, two or more of the attributes, when combined, contradict each other in some way. Um, so therefore, it's an incoherent concept um, based on its own internal definition. And then other ways are by saying, well, the internal concept of God may be coherent, but it contradicts an external feature or phenomenon of reality or the universe. So these are things like the problem of evil and suffering. You know, the, the existence of evil and suffering in the world contradicts one or more of God's internal attributes, such as him being omnipotent or omnibenevolent or that sort of thing. Um, then there's the hiddenness of God, which I think is the most powerful atheistic argument um, although it's still quite weak in my estimation, um, I do think that there's something there to it to consider on a balance of probabilities. Um, so again, that, there's that external feature that God is, is relatively hidden, uh, atheists or skeptics will try to argue. Therefore, that's inconsistent with the traditional attributes of God or the God final hypothesis. Um, and it's more probable than not that he doesn't exist, given that argument. Uh, and then finally, there's a possible fourth category, which I call the disteleological arguments or disteleology, using arguments from 
well, there's bad design or inefficient design in the universe. And given this external fact, uh, that is inconsistent. We've got the internal concept of God or, you know, the traditional God concept or the God final hypothesis in some way. So, um, so those are what we're going to be looking at in these series. And to start off, I wanted to take a look at the objective evidences with the cosmological arguments. So what are cosmological arguments? Well, as I sort of briefly explained, um, these are arguments that take, uh, at least traditionally, they take some sort of cosmic feature about or aspect about reality in the universe and then try to argue for based on that that there must be some sort of first cause or ultimate explanation um, that or ultimate or necessary explanation that stands behind and explains or causes that particular cosmic feature. Now it's important to note here that believe it or not I think that cosmological arguments are can be expanded based on the log based on categorizing arguments as cosmological on their logical form of argumentation, you know, arguing for an explanation or first cause. There are traditional cosmological arguments, and then there are non-traditional, or what I call, quote-unquote, extended cosmological arguments. And this is my terminology, just to sort of help give people a conceptual map of how or where various arguments for God's existence might fit in in the grand scheme of things. So, yeah, with, with extended cosmological arguments or non-traditional cosmological arguments, these can be things like arguments from miracles, taking um, an extraordinary feature of the universe uh, or phenomenon in the universe like miracles and arguing for a first cause, i.e. God, for those events. Or the moral argument or axiological arguments, you know, arguments from moral values or other values like beauty. Um, they require a first cause or an ultimate explanation and that it will be God or the God final hypothesis. So these are extended cosmological arguments. They're arguing the same way co traditional cosmological arguments operate on, but it, they're looking, they're different in that they, they look at local or non quote unquote cosmic features or phenomenon of the universe. Whereas traditional cosmological arguments um, really look at quote-unquote cosmic ordinary features of the universe. So these are sort of grand things uh, and, and we'll see there are three main types of traditional cosmological arguments. So in the first place there's the argument that we're going to be looking at today and that is the Leibnizian cosmological argument otherwise called the argument from contingency. And you know this started with philosophers like Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz uh, who is responsible for the name Leibnizian cosmological argument. There's also the Kalam cosmological argument argued by uh, for people by like Dr. William Lane Craig. Uh, and then finally there are Thomistic cosmological arguments named after Thomas Aquinas, the famous medieval philosopher, and his you know th first three ways sort of correspond to these types of um, cosmological arguments. They argue for a first cause or quote-unquote unmoved mover. So Basically, with the Leibnizian cosmological argument, or the argument from contingency, uh, the phenomenon or, or quote-unquote cosmic feature that we're looking at is the existence of the universe or reality itself, uh, whether that's the universe or multiverse, whatever, the, the cosmos. It's the answer to the question, why does something exist rather than nothing? And, um, you know, they, they try to argue for an ultimate explanation. Typically, 
with the Leibnizian cosmological arguments, we employ um, either a, a general explanatory principle or some sort of non-local causal principle that can apply to even an infinite causal chain or the, or the universe, an eternal universe of cause and effects as a whole. So, you know, these arguments are immune to criticisms such as, oh, well, the universe is eternal. Yep, so what? This argument still destroys the skeptic and proves that God exists regardless. Whereas the Kalam cosmological argument, um, this tries to argue the feature, the cosmic feature that needs to be explained here through the use of some sort of causal principle, either local or non-local, is that the universe began to exist, right? That That's the feature, cosmic feature that we're looking at. Um, with Thomistic cosmological arguments, there are Again, there are different. There are at least three ways that Thomas Aquinas gives, and there are different versions and that sort of thing. So, one the most one of the most famous examples of a f cosmic feature that we're looking at here with this traditional cosmological argument is the fact that there is motion in the universe, and we try to argue for an unmoved mover, a first cause of motion. So that just sort of gives you an, an example of how the traditional cosmological arguments work, um, whereas the non-traditional or extended uh, cosmological arguments really look at taking some non-cosmic feature or phenomenon in the universe. It, it's not some grand uh, fact about the universe and that's uncon virtually uncontested. Some of them are more controversial than others, like an argument from consciousness. Uh, well, does consciousness exist or is it just the brain? There's, there might be some controversy with, with that or arguments from miracles. Do miracles happen or not? You know, traditional cosmological arguments try to try to make their argument based on a, a grand cosmic fact or feature about reality or the universe that's virtually uncontested. Everybody admits the universe exists, or everybody admits something exists, or everybody admits uh, the universe began to exist, or most rational people will. And, and that's what the arguments, the arguments obviously have to prove that, but that's the basis. It's, it's less contested. Uh, more grand scheme and, and less contested. That's sort of the different difference uh, between traditional cosmological arguments and what I'm calling extended or non-traditional cosmological arguments, even though it's the, the same form, right? We, the universe exists. How do you explain that? What's the ultimate explanation of that? Um, the universe began to exist. What caused the universe to begin to exist? Extended cosmological arguments, there's a miracle. There's a miracle phenomenon in the universe. Uh, what caused that or what explains that? You know, there, there are moral values and duties. What caused that or what explained that? So this, it's the same form of reasoning. It's just they differentiate based on what the, the type of feature uh, that we're trying to explain. So, so yeah, let, let's move on. Um, so those are the three main types of traditional cosmological arguments. And with traditional cosmological arguments, um, really skeptics have raised four main objections or, or main categories of objection to the three different traditional types of cosmological arguments. And in order for any cosmological argument to be successful, they must overcome these quote-unquote hurdles or problems that skeptics have come up with. So what are these problems? Well, in the, in the first place, uh, there's what Alexander Proust has termed the quote-unquote Glendower problem. So, so he, call, he names this problem after Glendower in one of Shakespeare's plays, Henry IV, I believe it is. And he basically, the character Glendower is saying, hey, I, I can summon spirits from hell or from the dead. Um, and then another character responds in returns, yeah, so can I. In fact, so can every man. 
But the real question is, do they actually come when you call? Um, so, you know, that's where the, that's the namesake of this problem. But essentially what the Glendower problem is, is number one, it, it's, an, it's an outright denial that there is, um, that the cosmic feature in question does in fact call for an explanation or cause in the first place. Or sorry, yeah, that, that there is, it, it denies in the first place that there is any causal principle or explan general explanatory principle in the first place that applies to these types of things. And then secondly, you could also deny that it apply that this, even if there is a general explanatory principle or causal principle, does it actually apply to the specific phenomenon that you have in mind? So with our example, in the, we're going to be looking at the Leibnizian cosmological argument. I'm going to be using a general explanatory principle called the principle of sufficient reason to make my argument rather than a, a non-local causal principle or, or that sort of thing. So in the first place, we get the Glendower problem will be, well, is there a principle of sufficient reason that applies? And secondly, even if there is such a thing, does that apply to the existent, the phenomenon of the existence of something, aka the existence of the universe? The second major problem is the infinite regress problem. How do we deal with an infinite regress of explanations or sufficient reasons or causes if you're using the causal principle? The third one is the taxicab logical fallacy. So this is typically expressed in the typical skeptical objection, which I think is really... Uh, I don't think it's a good one, but skept, a lot of skeptics fall for this and think it's a good objection. And admittedly, it is something that needs to be addressed, but I think it's just easily addressed. But... So that's the taxicab fallacy. So great, uh, you want you're making an argument with the Leibnizian argument for the existence of the universe um, needs an explanation or a cause. Okay, well let's go back. What caused that first cause, or what explains that first cause? Then you can't just abandon your PSR once you get what you want. You have to apply that principle consistently. Um, so so yeah, the, in dealing with the taxicab fallacy. A theist using a cosmological argument has to explain how the explanatory or causal principle uh, applies to the first cause or ultimate explanation itself. Um, now, obviously, that that's typically solved by showing that the first cause or the ultimate explanation is is different uh, from the specific cosmic feature that you're trying to explain in a way that's not ad hoc. Um, and, and it's it still re shows that the principle is is relevant. And then the final problem, this is a problem raised by Andrew, um, and it's, I think this is the most difficult aspect uh, for cosmological arguments that, that has had the least amount of work on, but it's the gap problem. So it's, it's a, okay, great, you are totally successful. You have proven there's a first cause or an ultimate explanation, but now how do you bridge that gap of deriving the existence of a god, or aka the god final hypothesis, from the fact that there's a first cause or ultimate explanation. We'll see that there are other options. Maybe the multiverse is uh, is what is necessary and that's what caused or explains the universe. It's not God. You know, how do you derive God with all of his attributes from this basic first cause or necessary ultimate explanation? So those are the four fundamental problems that every cosmological argument has to overcome in order to be successful. And these are the the format of how I'm going to be addressing the cosmological arguments that I'll be using. 
um, as well as applying them to extended cosmological arguments when appropriate. Um, but just understand with the extended cosmological arguments, because those are non-cosmic features, there may be other problems or additional problems or different problems that apply to those. And we'll get to that when we address those arguments. Okay, so as I said, uh, we're going to be looking at the first of these. The, the most fundamental, I think, is the what's called the Leibnizian cosmological argument, or sometimes it's called the argument from contingency. And this is really the answer of why is there something rather than nothing? Something exists, and that something is typically defined as the universe, uh, but it doesn't have to be. Why, why is there something rather than nothing? There, there could have been nothing, but there's something. And this requires an explanation and or cause. So, yeah, as I said, this argument was really first developed or formula, formalized by Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who lived in the 17th and, and early 18th century. Um, it's been modified and, and adopted by various modern philosophers who you'll, I'll provide sources on, but people like Stephen T. Davis, uh, Richard Taylor, Ronald Nash, um, Robert C. Coons, and Alexander Proust, who's going to be one of our main sources, and, and uh, we're indebted for his work, and I'll provide his work in the sources for people, a couple sources from him. But additionally, that it, it has to be noted, look, there are some contemporary Christian Christian philosophers who don't like this argument, or, or at the very least, wary about using it in that. So, you know, people like J.P. Moreland don't like this. Uh, Peter Van Inwagen. And even at one time, Dr. William Lane Craig, my, my own personal hero, he wasn't a fan of the Leibnizian cosmological argument. But in recent years, he's actually subsequently changed his mind. Uh, and again, I'm going to be using his sources. He's changed his mind for good reason, based on looking at Stephen T. Davis's version. And he now thinks that the uh, Leibnizian cosmological argument is, in fact, a successful argument. And it's really uh, Stephen T. Davis's version, through, uh, as adapted and um, adopted by William Lane Craig, that we're going to be using as our, as our primary argument here uh, today. So what is this argument? So the Leibnizian cosmological argument um, that we're going to be using, as I said, just note that there are various versions. Each of these philosophers have their own versions. Alexander Proust has three different versions um, that he argues for in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, for example. So understand that there are multiple versions, all of which could be successful and, and you know, the more the merrier, the even more we have to prove God with. Um, so long as these different versions aren't contradictory with each other and they're compatible with each other, then there really is no problem um, in having multiple. It's, it's just we've got even more proof for God's existence. But the particular version, I want to use just one, and that's the version uh, by Stephen T. Davis said, I've made some uh, modifications to uh, Stephen T. Davis's version of the argument, and uh, we're going to be, uh, yeah, so there's a, a bit of a tweak there uh, in terms of how I've, I've adopted and adapted uh, uh, Davis's version of the argument. So premise number one uh, of our uh, contingency argument, or uh, Leibnizian cosmological argument, is going to be the universe and or universe plus, uh, more on that uh, in a different part, but uh, the universe exists contingently. In other words, it is a contingent existing thing. 
Um, so that's the tweak I, I'm adding in that it, it doesn't just, it's not just that it exists, but it, that it exists contingently. That's the cosmic feature um, that I'm looking to explain in my argument. Premise number two is basically every existing thing, whether contingent or not, including the universe, has a sufficient explanation for its existence, either in the necessity of its own internal nature, um, in other words, it's, it's logically necessary, or in an external cause. And this premise is basically the principle of sufficient reason, that I'm, I'm, I'm positing an explanatory principle rather than a causal principle to overcome that Glendower problem. Again, more, more on that when we get to it. Um, however, it's important to note this is a, a weak or watered-down version of the principle of sufficient reason. It's not the same strong principle of sufficient reason that Leibniz himself would have given, um, where he thinks that, you know, in terms of sufficient explanation, that what does that mean? And that again, we'll get into that um, in time. But just note, this is a weakened principle of sufficient reason, and it's not even necessary for me in premise number two to to argue that every existing thing has an explanation, because remember the cosmic feature we're explaining is that the universe exists contingently. So really, if somebody wants to make an issue out of, well, can necessary beings have a sufficient explanation, we can further modify premise two and just say, well, look, minimally, at least every contingent existing thing, including the universe, has a sufficient reason uh, or explanation for its existence uh, via an external cause. Um, so that's something you can play with uh, if you don't want to get into issues of necessity, as, as we'll see when we assess premise two, you can just say, well, look, every contingent existing thing has a sufficient explanation for its existence um, via an external cause. Uh, and finally, premise number three, the final premise in our argument is, look, if the universe has a sufficient explanation of its contingent existence, then that explanation is God one. Conclusion, therefore, the universe has a sufficient explanation of its existence through an external cause, and that uh, explanation is the God, uh, the truth uh, of the God one hypothesis. In other words, as we'll see when we get to the end, God. So that's the argument in a nutshell. Very simple, easy to memorize, easy to understand. However, uh, I just want to make something clear here. You'll notice from the conclusion and in premise three, I said, quote unquote, God one exists or God one, uh, the God one hypothesis is the explanation for the universe's existence. Well, God one, what, what is that? I thought we were trying to prove that God proper or the, you know, the being God, the fullness of God exists. Um, or at the very least, weren't you trying to argue for the God final hypothesis? And the answer was, yeah, that is my end goal. But with the Leibnizian cosmological argument, I'm not necessarily arguing for the full, for the full God final hypothesis or the, the God being himself. And that will come into play with the gap problem later on as we get into that. That relieves a lot of the pressure or stress because God one can be minimally defined as, you know, a, a necessary being or an ultimate explanation of the universe that entails a various subset 
of properties or attributes which are consistent or compatible with and non-contradictory to the full set of the God final hypothesis. And yeah, I'm basically limiting what the argument is trying to prove. And this eliminates some of the problem. If, if I can't prove that God is omniscient, um, and that's an attribute of the God final hypothesis or an attribute of the traditional God, the being God himself that we want to argue for, doesn't matter. The Leibnizian cosmological argument doesn't need to prove that. It just needs to prove the various properties or attributes that can be derived um, through the Leibnizian cosmological argument in conjunction with any subsequent or supplemental argument argumentations that allow us to derive certain properties or, or attributes. So by saying we're arguing for the, the God one hypothesis, uh, we'll find out that this eliminates a lot of the pressure that the gap problem uh, provided by skeptics will entail and is not an issue because we're making a cumulative case. It's not just the Leibnizian cosmological argument that bears the full weight of proving the God final hypothesis. Uh, it's a cumulative case. We have multiple arguments that combine to prove that the God final hypothesis exists or is true. So yeah, I just wanted to make a, a quick note about that for you guys to notice. Um, okay, so, so let's get into assessing this argument. In the first place, we have to notice this argument is logically valid. The conclusion follows inevitably and necessarily from the three premises. It commits no formal or informal logical fallacies. Bada boom, bada bing, you have proven God one is true or that God exists. But that's only on condition that the premises are logically sound. And therein lies the rub. That's where the disagreement between atheists and Christians lies. Are the three premises logically sound? Are, they war are we warranted in saying that those premises are more plausible or probable to be true than, or more probably true than not? And can we demonstrate that? Are we warranted in saying that they're more probably true than not? That's what we're gonna be focusing on uh, next, yeah, let's get let's get straight into it. Uh, what is the logical soundness of the Leibnizian cosmological argument that the version that we're using? Okay, so premise number one says, look, the universe exists contingently. In other words, the universe is a contingent existing thing. That is the cosmic fact that we're trying to uh, cosmic feature that we're trying to explain. Uh, or that we're using uh, in this argument to to argue for God's existence. So in the first place, what do we mean? Just a quick definitional note, what do we mean by universe? Um, so basically what I mean by quote unquote universe, I'm just referring to all of space-time and its contents. Hypothetically, that could be expanded to include the multiverse or cosmos, as Matt Dillahunty likes to call it, uh, all of space-time and its contents over the past 13.8 billion years. That, that's what we mean by universe. In assessing premise one, it's important to note that there are uh, two fundamental aspects that uh, we need to establish in order for premise number one to be proven true on a balance of probabilities. The first aspect, uh, aspect number one, is that the universe is indeed a, a quote-unquote existing thing. The universe exists. Uh, it's a thing that exists. And secondly, aspect number two is that uh, not only is the universe an existing thing, but it is contingent. It is a contingent existing thing. So those are the two fundamental aspects uh, that we need to establish in 
um, warranting the truth of premise number one. So let's turn to aspect one. Uh, the universe is an existing thing, or the universe exists. Um, you know, let, let's take a look at what it, uh, how we can prove what it means for the universe to be an existing thing. So what does it mean? The universe exists, or it is, uh, quote-unquote, an existing thing. Well, what, what the heck does that mean? What does it mean to be an existing thing? So in the first place, I, I think, well, what, is it, what does it mean for a thing to exist? What does it mean to exist? Or what is existence? And philosophers have said that, look, existence, um, you, you will have heard skeptics in Immanuel Kant against, on, against ontological arguments. They'll say, look, existence is not a predicate or is not a property. You know, that, that sort of goes against like, oh, well, God is the greatest conceivable. God is the greatest conceivable being. He has all the great making properties to the maximal degree. Um, and existence is a great making property. And, and you know, skeptics will come back and say, no, it's not. Existence is not a property. It's not, let alone a great making property. Um, so, you know, this, these ontological arguments fail. Um, now, obviously, we'll, we'll get into that uh, when we get to the ontological argument. I'm not defending that argument here today. But I bring up the, the object, that ob skeptical objection because it, it illustrates a point. Existence is not a property of a thing. So what, what is existence then? And most philosophers will say for something to exist or, or, the, or what existence is, is a quote-unquote belonging relation. It's a relation or a relationship and of the belong of a special kind it's a belonging other philosophers I'll, I'll provide sources from the stanford encyclopedia it, sometimes they call it an exemplification or predication or instancing relation basically to, to sort of illustrate a tiger exists when the essence of being a tiger or the you know the tiger the essential properties of tigerness are instantiated or exemplified or quote-unquote belong to a particular thing, namely that tiger, Bob the Tiger. That's typically what we need. It's this instantiation of a thing that bears properties and, and has the essential properties of the type of thing or essence that it is, right? It has the essential tiger properties if you're a tiger. I have the essential human properties if I'm a human. Um, but there's also the instantiation of accidental properties or contingent properties. I have the accidental property, I have the essential properties of uh, being a human, but I also have the accidental properties of having blue eyes and brown hair or, or white skin, whatever. So when we say something exists, we're saying it, it stands in a belonging or instantiation or instancing relationship. It, it instances or or exemplifies properties and brings them into actuality. Um, so that's what it means for something to exist. But what does it mean to be a thing? Um, and believe it or not, this isn't a stupid question. Because in uh, philosophy, there's a, a field of study called muriology, which is basically the, the study of parts and wholes and, and their you know, part-whole relations. And there are, when we say that the universe is a thing, well, it makes sense to ask, well, what do you mean by thing? What what kind of thing is it? Because there are at least three types of things. Um, so, so essentially, when we say something's a thing, we, we want to say, look, it's it's this unified thing or this unified whole um, that has various parts, but it it stands under it. It bears up various properties. It it, it 
ex exemplifies or instantiates certain properties. Remember what it means to exist. It, um, where a, th a, a thing, where certain properties belong to a certain thing. And there are three main types of things uh, based on their degree of unity. So the first type of thing is a heap. Um, so this is basically, you know, there are homogeneous heaps and there are heterogeneous heaps. So there's a, a heap of salt, uh, that's a homogeneous type, or a, a heap of garbage is heterogeneous. You have a whole bunch of different types of stuff all together in a heap. And basically what it is that unifies a heap into a thing uh, as one thing is it's only spatial proximity of, of the various individual parts in relation to each other. That's the only thing that really unites this into a certain type of thing. And uh, when it comes to the universe, obviously the universe is not a heap. There, there's a more cohesive degree of unity than that. So it, it, it's not a heap. It must be something, one of the other two types of things. So the second thing is really has the highest degree of, of unity and, and it it's called a, a substance. And this is what human beings are. I'm a substance. Uh, my soul, God, uh, our souls are s spiritual substances. And it's uh, basically our souls derive unity uh, from their own internal essence or nature. And in these, the, the whole is prior to its parts. And, and the parts are only unified in virtue of their function within that whole. And it's the whole that really informs uh, and employs the various parts in certain ways. So my, my hand, for example, is a part of the substance, Dale, the human being. And yeah, that, that's kind of how you would go with that. And uh, a lot of people, uh, I think most scientists and most philosophers would say that the universe isn't really a substance. That That's too high a degree of unity. There is um, some dispute as to well, what is a substance. Some people hold to what's called the bundle theory of substance, and you know that that's kind of uh, debatable. But um, yeah, at least in the traditional sense of how I'm using the word substance, the universe is not a, a substance. And there are six features that distinguish um, substances from other types of things, and uh, I've mentioned a few of them, and I'll, I'll include a. A chart in this video hopefully for, for you guys to, to see the comparisons but yeah that so it doesn't make sense to say the universe is a substance really so so then what is it what type of thing could it be and here's where we would say it it is a property thing that's the appropriate classification the kind of thing that the universe is basically property things derive their unity from some kind of external principle it's not an inherent unity there's an external principle principle that's artificially imposing unity on on this uh, on its parts from the outside the parts are metaphysically prior to the whole itself so the parts are fundamental not the whole um, and in this way the, the whole's existence is really dependent on the parts in the relations of those various uh, parts that make it up make up the whole so really, pr property things are myriological aggregates of their parts. Uh, that's the technical terminology, myriological aggregates of their parts. And, uh, you know, they, they don't maintain, maintain their sameness or, you know, they don't maintain strict numerical identity through uh, changes in, in their parts or in their various relations between their parts. Uh, it, it becomes an entirely new 
object. And this is a, a notion in philosophy known as muriological essentialism. So if you have a raft, a physical object like a raft, if it loses one of its wooden boards, one of its parts, and it's replaced with a new board, that is an entirely new raft. It's not the same raft, raft with just a new board. Same, same deal if you take out one of the boards and then put the same board right back in, but you nail it in differently. It, it's, it's not going to be having the exact same relationship or relations between its parts. And it therefore becomes, as a property thing, it becomes an entirely new raft, an entirely new thing. Human beings, on the other, on their other hand, are substances. So our, our, the whole is prior to its parts, and we can maintain sameness through physical part and/or relational changes uh, that take place in our body. I can have my hand chopped off, but I'm still Dale. I'm still the same substance. Property things are different. Um, once it loses a part or the relations change within it, it's no longer the same thing. It's an entirely different thing. And this is this will be relevant, as we'll see later on, um, because this is the type of thing the universe is. It's a property thing, and that may have some important ramifications as we go through our cosmological argument. In terms of aspect one of our first premise, I think it's obvious that the universe is, in fact, an existing thing. Um, so it's a property thing that exemplifies or... Uh, has certain properties that belong to it as a property thing. Uh, so for example, it has spatial, it has the property of having spatial temporal dimensions. It has the property of containing various galaxies, planets, stars, Dale Glover. It has the property of, expa of it, its expansion rate. Um, it has the property of being 13.82 billion years old. Again, not getting into debates with young Earth creationists. I know they'll debate it. Regard, regardless of the fact of the age of the universe, it has the property of being that age. So obviously, the universe is a thing that bears certain properties and instantiates certain properties. So it stands in the instantiation or exemplification relation for these properties as a unified property owner. Yep, the universe is an existing thing. And, and this premise is really unassailable. It's undeniable. Every atheist, agnostic, philosopher, anyone with a PhD, all admit this. Matt Dill, I've got Matt Dillahunty in the sources. He admits this. Is, you can't really deny the, that the universe is an existing thing or, or something that exists. Hope to be seen as a rational agent. However, let, let's try and take a look. Rather than, you know, usually this is just sort of dismissed by philosophers, even Alexander Proust or, or Coons or William Lane Craig, they just kind of gloss over this and say, you can't possibly object to this. Um, but let, let's give the skeptic the benefit of the doubt. Let's let's say there are a couple th things they can try to say against this. Let, let's say uh, you come across a smart Alex skeptic who, who wants to say, oh yeah? Well, I deny that the universe is a quote-unquote existing thing because it's not real. I believe, and my professor Paul, um, actually Paul Bali, who was on the show, he believes uh, this like uh, a philosopher Nick Bostrom that we inhabit a virtual world. Uh, it's it's this is an illusory world. You know, Eastern philosophies have my the concept of Maya, perhaps that the entire world is an illusion and it's not real. Um, and there's really a base reality out there that hosts the virtual world and. This is all an illusion. So 
ha, I, I can deny your your first premise. There is the universe isn't an existing thing because it's an illusion. It's not real. But this objection is is really misguided and and it utterly fails because actually, no. Let let's pretend you're entirely right and the universe that we that we inhabit is merely a virtual one. Well, a virtual universe is still an existing thing that bears these properties that we have. It also has the additional property of being virtual or illusory. So you don't escape the argument. The you don't escape this premise. The universe, whether virtual or a base reality, is still an existing thing. And furthermore, if you take this route, you skeptics are in for a world of hurt because not only do you now have to explain the virtual universe, uh, but you also have to explain the hosting base reality or base universe that hosts the virtual universe. You've got two universes to explain now, not just one. So, uh, you know, be careful, skeptics. Uh, try, try to, you know, try not to deny common sense just to... What, what's the saying? Try not to spite your nose. I, I don't know. There's a saying like that, but... Yeah, this doesn't help you. Whether the universe is virtual or not, it is still an existing thing. You've failed. Um, but here's a second thing that skeptics might try to, a smart aleck skeptic might try to bring up to avoid this premise. They'll, they'll say, well, I'm a solipsist. The universe doesn't exist. It's not an existing thing. It's just a figment of my imagination because none of you, the trees, the planets, the stars, none of that exists. They just exist in my mind because I am the only one that exists. That's, that's their, their argument, this solipsist position, as it's called. Well, guess what, skeptics? Uh, again, utter failure, because you exist. You are something that exists. You're a, you are a substance, right? Rene Descartes' whole, I think, therefore I am, um, which destroys anyone that denies that is just skeptical to the point of foolishness. It is obvious. I exist. I am something. I am a substance that bears properties. I have these thoughts. I have the property of imagining a universe, an external universe. That's not true, you could say. So regardless, I can just reformulate the thing to say universe means I exist. There, there's still something that exists and is therefore going to need to require an explanation. I just give that the label universe. But yeah, again, this this type solipsists are not taken seriously it, it it's a joke i mean no basically no one who's a real seeker of truth believes that we all know better we know it's obvious that there is this external universe i am not the only thing that exists the universe is not a figment of my imagination it is an external reality or and i am just merely one of these substances that is contained within that's where most rational people will be um, but even still, even if we want to concede to the radical skeptic that solipsism is true, great, I'll just reformulate the premise and redefine universe to say you exist, and therefore you are a thing, you are an existing thing, you require an explanation for your existence. Yeah, I, th I think it's obvious that um, aspect number one is 100% uh, proven true. Um, we know in a properly basic way that the universe does exist as an external reality, a property thing that bears certain properties, and as such, uh, it uh, is a thing that has um, uh, that stands in the belonging relation uh, in terms of ver those various properties. So it is an existing thing. Uh, I think aspect one is is pretty 
well established. So yeah, let, let's move on to aspect two. Okay, great. The, the universe is an existing thing. Uh, I may agree with you on that. Uh, but there's that second aspect or element of your first premise where you need to establish that the universe isn't just an existing thing. It is a contingent existing thing. It, it exists contingently. And uh, that's what I want to turn to next. Okay, so in uh, establishing the contingency or the contingent existence of the universe, I've developed three main arguments. Um, so the first one is, number one, we can prove on a balance of probabilities that the universe, as a matter of fact, began to exist. Our, our we can prove as uh, factually that uh, our specific universe had a beginning, you know, the standard Big Bang model and that sort of thing. The second argument is, okay, even if we concede that the, our universe is factually eternal, it never began to exist as a matter of fact, we can still prove that it's logically possible that our universe uh, began to exist. The standard Big Bang model is logically coherent. And therefore, there is a logically possible world. I, again, see the sources for modal logic and, and terminology like possible world semantics, but um, there's a logical possible world where our universe began to exist. And if that's the case, then the universe by definition is contingent because in order to be logically necessary, our universe would have to exist eternally in every single logically possible world. So if there's even one possible world, if it's even possible that our universe began to exist, then that proves our universe is contingent and not logically necessary. And then finally, number three, um, so I'll even grant the skeptics, let's pretend that our universe is out of inherent necessity eternal. It, it's impossible for our universe to have begun to exist. Nonetheless, it's logically possible that our universe doesn't, didn't exist. There are logically possible worlds where different universes exist uh, or where no universes exist. And if it's even, like once again, if it's even possible, if there's even one possible world where our universe does not exist, it is not logically possible. So these are the three main arguments um, that I'm going to be advancing that prove our universe is contingent. Uh, remember, con contingent, it, uh, things can be eternal and still be contingent. Eternality is an essential aspect of something being logically necessary but it doesn't work in reverse. Uh, so so something, if something's not eternal, then it's not logically necessary by definition. But the reverse is not also true. So something may not be logically, logically necessary, but it may, might be eternal. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we're coming from. Those are the three arguments that I'm giving for the contingency, the, the fact that the universe is not logically necessary. And, uh, I want to take these in reverse order from the ones that I just mentioned. So in the first place, we're going to deal with um, my third argument first, basically saying that, look, it, it's logically possible that a different universe and or even no universe worlds exist. And as such, there are possible worlds where our universe doesn't exist. Uh, and if there's even one, as I said, if there's even one world, possible world where our universe doesn't exist, it is by definition uh, not logically necessary according to modal logic and modal terminology. 
Now remember, um, when I'm, I mentioned for this third argument for that I'm covering here first, um, I'm conceding that not only is our universe factually eternal, it's inherently eternal out of a matter of necessity. Um, now, wait, well, isn't that, uh, doesn't that mean I'm just conceding the debate? Um, aren't I just saying that the universe is logically necessary? No, because there are different kinds of necessity here. So this, this argument is conceding that the universe may be factually necessary due to some inherent reason. Whatever, uni whatever world our universe exists in, it's eternal out of factual necessity for some, for whatever reason you want to you want to postulate. And I'm just conceding that, but that's not the same as conceding that the universe is logically necessary, because obviously. I'm saying no, there are possible worlds where we can conceive of different universes. Modern science backs me up. For example, we uh, know about the fine-tuning of our universe. And through our modal, modal evaluating faculties and through mathematics and modern cosmology, we are able to come up with coherent models of alternative universes. Ever hear of the multiverse? Um, where it's a com these are completely different universes that are not light that are life prohibiting. They have different fundamental constants, different initial conditions, different uh, laws of nature value values for the laws of nature and these sort of things. You know, I, I think it's M theory that that predicts there are as many as ten to the power of five hundred universes. Uh, others say there's an infinite number um, of different universes that exist in this multi-universe or something so obviously it's logically coherent to envisage to envision uh, different universes that could exist and uh, if that mean that means there are possible worlds with different universes other than our own where our universe doesn't exist and if that's the case well then there you go bada boom bada bing um, that's shows that the uni our universe is contingent because it doesn't exist eternally in every single possible world uh, as it is. And it's important to know, remember, this argument hinges on the fact that, remember we said the universe is a property thing. It's not a substance or, or something like that. So when you change any of the physical parts or any of the physical relations of the universe, such as changing the, uh, you know, Ultimately, everything in the universe, uh, all of the parts that, you know, the contents of it are configurations of fundamental particles, quarks, electrons, these subatomic particles, ultimately, what everything reduces down to, everything physical reduces down to. So that's what you ultimately are saying, okay, well, the group of, fun when you say the our universe is logically necessary, you're saying that all of those fundamental particles are logically necessary because it's not so much obviously no one disagrees that things like planets or galaxies or human beings or uh, animals whatever we we are all contingent right the, the planet earth could not have existed no atheist in the right mind would deny that uh, but the thing is, yeah, but those re all those physical things are just configurations that reduce down to fundamental particles, and that's what they're saying is logically necessary, those particles. But again, that's ridiculous, because once again, we can envision possible worlds that have different sets of fundamental particles. I can envision a possible world where there's one less quark in it, or one more quark than what we have in the actual universe. 
Um, and like I said, we can envision worlds with an entirely different set of quarks and electrons in that than the ones that exist in this universe. They are not logically necessary. And our modal evaluating faculties produce a, a properly basic belief in this regard. And modern cosmology and mathematics has backed this uh, uh, intuitive knowledge up um, through mathematical proofs of, of alternative cosmological models and that sort of thing. Now, what's even uh, more is I can also we can also conceive of a po logically possible world where a, there is no universe, there is no physical stuff at all. It's just supernatural beings, or just a world where God exists alone. Even atheists. When they're coming up with the problem of evil, they can conceive of a world with God alone, and they compare that to the actual world where God chooses to create. And they say, God is evil, because look at all the evil in this world. It would have been better had God just continued to exist alone. They're implicitly saying, my modal evaluating faculties allow me to conceive of a world where God exists alone. Therefore, there's a, a possible world in their mind where God can exist alone. Uh, this is a logically coherent notion, and that means, again, our universe doesn't exist in every single logically possible world. Under the term, under the rules of modal logic, that means it's not logically necessary and is therefore contingent. Now, one thing uh, just to mention with this, um, one escape route that some skeptics have given with the modern cosmology and, and quantum physics, and that they'll say, okay, well, look, maybe the fundamental particles can be further reduced. Uh, down to quantum fields or, or and the laws of nature and that and, and that's what's really logically necessary um, But it's the same problem that they have with the I can envision different quantum fields different laws of nature And that's what the fine-tuning argument um, Teleological argument from the fine-tuning of the universe is all about. That's what the multiverse is all about. So uh, Taking that escape route doesn't help uh, again. It, it's just obvious that given the universe is a property thing uh, and we can and the fact that we can conceive of a universe with different parts and different physical relations between those parts it's just obvious that yeah there are possible worlds where our universe does not exist altogether um, and like I said even atheists can conceive of a world where there's just no universe at all there's just God existing or Maybe it's a universe of angels and God and alone and so, something like that. So, yeah, I think this argument is pretty well established. And this is very, very strong. I, I would say it's proven beyond reasonable doubt. The the universe is uh, not logically necessary, or the universe that we live in. Okay, so let's go to the second argument then. And this argument says, well, look, it's, it's logically possible for our universe to have begun to exist. So that... This is not looking so much at, well, is it possible for other universes, are there other possible worlds with different universes in it? Um, but it's looking at, um, okay, of the possible worlds where our universe exists, all of its physical parts and uh, relations and properties are exactly the same as they are in this actual world. Um, it's possible that everything else could be equal except for the fact that our universe began to exist rather than exists eternally. Um, once again, it's, a, it's an essential element of logical necessity for something to be eternal. So if our universe uh, began to exist, it's not logically necessary. If it's not eternal, it's not necessary. Um, this is just basic logic. 
So, yeah, once again, this uh, our modal evaluating faculties can provide us with the conceivability of um, conceiving of a different possible world where pretend our universe is in fact eternal in this actual world. Nonetheless, I can conceive of where it uh, our universe exists, but it began to exist 13.82 billion years ago. Uh, modern mathematics, cosmology, and science back up our properly basic beliefs uh, from our modal evaluating faculties in this regard. It is mathematically and scientifically coherent to posit that our the standard Big Bang model uh, is true, and therefore our universe began to exist. So therefore, there is a logically possible world where our universe is not eternal, and that alone is enough to establish that our universe is contingent, uh, because if it were logically necessary, it would be eternal in every single logically possible world. Um, now, there is one escape route here that uh, some skeptics have brought up, uh, like Travis R. For example, when I uh, was dealing with the issue of um, doing my solo shows, I think part three, I was giving a modal argument for the existence of the soul. And there's this notion of trans-world identity, where, and this argument is, is uh, dependent on that notion. So trans-world identity in, in modal logic... Transworld identity just means, look, it, it's possible for an individual or th thing to exist in multiple possible worlds. So when I'm saying possibly our universe began to exist, pretend in this actual possible world, in, in the actual world, the universe is eternal. I'm saying there's another possible world where our universe exists, but it's not eternal. It began to exist. This assumes transworld identity. It assumes our universe exists both in this in the actual world and in that other possible world. It's the same thing. It's, they're not different things. And some people, some skeptics and atheists are, don't buy this notion of trans-world identity. They, they go for what are called world-bound individuals. So our universe only exists in this uh, in this possible world, in the actual world. There is no other possible world where the same thing exists, uh, where our universe exists, uh, as a in terms of beginning to exist. That universe may be the same as ours, um, but it's different uh, because it's in a different possible world, and that's the notion of a world-bound individual. Um, I'll provide sources on this. I, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I, I'm just going to say I don't buy this. Transworld identity seems to be the obvious answer. I, I'm 95% or more convinced of this, and, and the arguments are pretty clear-cut, in my opinion. Um, Dr. Elvin Plantinga is, is really, uh, in his book, The Nature of Necessity, shows that the theory of world-bound individuals is, and, and um, counterpart theory, which is another aspect of world-bound individuals, this is really a false notion. There's no good reason to deny that objects can uh, exist in more than one possible world. He really shows, in, in the article I'll attach, he, he really shows that this um, this notion of world-bound individuals is ridiculous because it, it, almost, it says that, look, in any given object, all of their properties, including accidental properties, are essential properties to what it is. Because, you know, like an accidental property would be I have blue eyes. Um, that's essential to who I, who I am as Dale Glover. No, I, I could have had brown eyes. That That's just an accidental property. It's a contingent 
property. There's a possible world where I exist, uh, I, Dale Glover, the substance exists, but I have brown eyes. I have the property of having brown eyes or black skin or whatever. But if you believe in this, if you deny trans world identity and you, and you go for this world-bound individuals thing, you're really saying that every single property that uh, a given object has, like our universe or, uh, you know, in terms of all of its fundamental properties, or in my case, my having blue eyes, that's essential to who I am. And that's that's really ridiculous. Um, that's just one of the, the reasons that Elvin Plantinga gives um, for for why this why trans world identity is obviously true, and I find it very persuasive. And I'll, I'll include in the sources uh, that article so you guys can read it for yourselves. So yeah, I think that covers it for for that argument. So really, the last argument on the list is okay. Well, well as I said, if the universe began to exist. If it's not eternal, then it's by definition not logically necessary because you uh, it's an essential element of anything that's logically necessary uh, for it to be eternal. Anything not eternal is not necessary. Yeah, that, that's what this final argument is. It's really me adapting uh, and co-opting another cosmological argument. I'm, I'm utilizing the evidence or warrant from, a, from the second premise of a different cosmological argument, namely the Kalam cosmological argument, which uh, that argument goes, you know, everything that begins to exist has a cause. So they're using a local causal principle there. Uh, and then the second premise is the universe began to exist. Uh, conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. And then, you know, they'll they'll be, Dr. William Lane Craig champions this, and he'll he'll argue why that cause, first cause, has to be God and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I'm not using, I'm not um, arguing the Kalam cosmological argument. I'm just co-opting the warrant for that second premise that the universe be, factually began to exist, or began to exist as a matter of fact, and use this to prove that the universe is contingent by de by definition if it's not eternal it's contingent so yeah i'm going to adopt the uh the, the warrant for the second premise from the kalam cosmological argument which proves the universe began to exist and on this front there are three main arguments that one can use to or uh that one can use to prove that the universe began to exist as a matter of fact the first two are philosophical in nature and they're presented as logically deductive arguments by Dr. William Lane Craig, who is the world's expert in this argument. He invented it. And the second one, the third one, uh, which I won't be covering in part one, but that'll be covered in part two, is the scientific evidence um, for the, the standard Big Bang model, the scientific evidence that proves the universe actually began to exist and is not eternal in the past. With that, William Lane Craig splits that up into two scientific confirmation evidences. I, I'm going to be combining that into one inductive argument or abductive argument or inference to the best explanation type argument based on both the scientific evidences from uh, cosmology combined. So, you know, things like the expansion rate of the universe and this evidence from the second law of thermodynamics that I'm going to put that as one argument. But again, that'll be for part two. What we'll be covering in part one is the two philosophical or logically deductive arguments that prove the universe began to exist. The first one is really um, a philosophical, philosophical argument that says it's 
Look, it's impossible for an actual infinite to exist. And it's important to note that this argument is time theory independent. And basically by that, there are two main theories, alternatives to viewing time in terms of the universe. One is the A theory of time or dynamic. Uh, sometimes it's called the tensed theory of time. And then there's the B theory, otherwise known as the static or the uh, tenseless theory of time, uh, where it views creation as timeless, just existing in this four-dimensional block of space and time. With this, with this argument, it doesn't matter. The first philosophical argument, it doesn't matter which one is true. If the B theory is true, great. If the A theory is true, great. It's still impossible for an actual infinite to exist. Uh, and then from that, um, they argue that, well, look, it, an eternal, the universe being a, having an etern, eternity of past events, uh, temporal events going into the pa eternal past, would constitute an actual infinite. And since we know actual infinites are impossible, you know, this proves that the universe must have begun to exist. The second argument is an argument from the impossibility of forming an actual infinite through successive addition, you know, adding one element after another. And, and this argument, as we'll see, is dependent on the A theory of time being true. Um, so, so that's an important distinction uh, to keep in mind as, as we go over these philosophical arguments. Um, so yeah, let, let's get straight into that and, and deal with the first argument, the, the logically deductive philosophical argument that comes about from the impossibility of an actual infinite. Remember that this argument goes through whether it's the A theory or the B theory is true. It, it doesn't matter which one of those is true. It's in this argument works independent of um, one's theory of time. Okay, so what is this argument? So uh, we can put it into a, a simple deductive argument two with two premises. So premise number one is an actual infinite or minimally uh, actual infinities that are relevant to the contradictory thought experiments cannot exist. Um, so notice that qualification. So uh, William Lynn Craig has it, an actual infinite cannot exist, but I've added a qualification, either an actual inf an infinite can't exist altogether, or minimally, um, I'm just arguing that at any actual infinities that are relevant to uh, the the usual contradictory thought experiments that we'll be looking at later, those cannot exist. At the very least, those can't exist. Premise number two is that an infinite temporal regress of uh, events into the past is an actual infinite. Uh, and I've added the qualifier, an actual infinite that's relevant to the contradictory thought experiments. Uh, therefore, conclusion. Uh, an infinite temporal regress of events cannot exist. Uh, and therefore the past is not eternal and the universe is not eternal. Uh, it, it must have begun to exist at some point. So yeah, let, let's turn to assessing these two premises. This is obviously a logically valid argument. It commits no formal or informal fallacies. Um, so the conclusion follows inevitably and necessarily from the truth of these two premises. Um, so the only question is, well, are the premise, two premises true? Are they logically sound? Um, now, in assessing the, the warrant for the first premise, that an actual infinite, or at the very least, actual infinities that are relevant to the contradictory thought experiments can't exist, 
Um, how do we go about assessing the logical soundness for this premise? Okay, so before we get into that, uh, it's important to make some points, definitional points, uh, or some clarification uh, on some of the definitions of the terms that we're using. So, in the first place, okay, I've used the term quote-unquote actual infinite. What is that? What, what, do you, what exactly does that mean? So, uh, just to give a bit of history on the notion of infinity or, or an infinite, um, really, since the time of Aristotle, all the way up to the 19th, late 19th uh, and 20th centuries, mathematicians and logicians have all said that there's only one type of infinity, and that's the potential infinite, potential infinity, and that's that's represented in math modern mathematics by the Lemniscate, gate, uh, otherwise known as the lazy eight infinity. Uh, so the eight turned horizontally on its side uh, that most of us are familiar with for. That's the symbol for infinity that represents a potential infinite. And uh, and it also, in our calculators, it'll come out as indefinite. Um, but yeah, this is really useful in areas like probability calculus, for example. And it, it just represents an ideal limit or, or really a, a boundary that can never be reached. But um, one can hypothetically, eternally aim to reach it, but they'll never actually get to infinity. This is why it's only a potential infinity. Um, an actual infinite, on the other hand, is no, we've actually uh, realized a real infinity of numbers or something like that. And this started coming in, as I said, in the late 19th century and 20th centuries. There were mathematicians like Bernard uh, Balzano, uh, Richard Dedekind, uh, and the most famous name, name of all, who's done the most for, for modern-day infinite set theory, is uh, George Cantor. Um, and he really popularized this notion that, look, there are actual infinities, and, and they're a respected part of modern mathematics. Uh, Cantor, he considered the potential infinite to be the what he called the improper infinite. And uh, instead, he pronounced that the actual infinite is really the true infinite uh, that that modern set theory is, is is based upon in mathematics, and he represented this by the symbol aleph, the Hebrew letter aleph, null. One of his major breakthroughs is that look, there there isn't just one actual infinity; there is an actual infinity number of actual infinities. So you know, the number of real numbers is aleph null. Um, but then there's other infinities as well, LF1, LF2, and so on and so forth, up to infinity. So that you, um, you know, there's an infinite number of imaginary numbers. There's an in actual infinite number of uh, whole numbers, of, of um, negative numbers versus positive numbers. So there's a, an infinity of infinities, as it were. Um, and eventually you get to, we have an LF null number of sets of eleph null uh, numbers, different types of numbers. So it's um, it's it's a very crazy uh, notion that that violates our common sense, um, but seems to more or less work in modern mathematics in, in infinite set theory. Now there is one thing I'll, I'll qualify here just on the history aspect. So Cantor's, uh, he advocated for something that is logically contradictory and, and it was total rubbish later by, proven by later mathematicians. Um, they, they said his notion was quote unquote naive set theory. And it's really subsequently been replaced by what's called Zermelo-Frankel uh, axiomatic set theory. So that's the new infinite set theories that deal with actual infinites that 
all modern mathematicians uh, use today. Um, and it works in, in mathematics. So I, I just want to clarify it. This, in this argument, we are not disputing that an actual infinite is a legitimate concept in terms of theoretic, theoretical mathematics. Uh, and we're not denying that actual infinities are strictly logically possible. Uh, possible. You know, they, they don't entail strict logical contradictions, A and not A, at least in the abstract uh, or theoretical sense of, of modern-day mathematics. Uh, you're following and, and bound by these strict axioms or rules that are in place uh, in order to make infinite set theory um, logically coherent. Um, but as we'll see, if you don't follow those rules, as reality is not bound by, by them, then contradictions do emerge. But um, yeah, at least at least uh, if you're following axiomatic set theory uh, and following those axioms and rules, then yeah, there there is no strict logical contradiction that emerges, uh, at least on that theoretical level where those rules are are upheld. Um, just uh, a priori, they're just rules. Pre you gotta go by those rules, um, or else it doesn't work. So what instead what we're gonna be trying to argue for here is that well look. The actual infinite is not realizable. It's not metaphysically or broadly logically possible, and um, as it's inconceivable for it to exist apart from being instantiated in the mind. So that's really what the argument is trying to say. It's, it's saying the actual infinity can work in mathematics for certain uh, under certain strict axioms or rules, but in the real world, it can't be actualized because those rules don't translate to reality and. As we'll see, a whole bunch of chaos ensues from that. I want to admit upfront that there is actually an added level to this. That um, actual inf infinite, the actual infinite, does actually apply to the real world. That there is a practical usefulness that it has. So, you know, actual infinities are used to precisely calculate the circumference of the Earth, uh, and that's useful for orbital satellites, you know, stuff like that, calculating orbits and stuff. Um, they can explain the rise and the fall of the stock market and uh, so yeah the point is actual infinities do have a real-world practical usefulness and uh, sometimes skeptics will say well this proves that the actual inf infinite must actually exist in reality it must be broadly logically possible and or feasible for them to exist if, if they have practical usefulness um, but that's going too far in my view. No, number one, it assume, this argument assumes that Platonism is true, and that just begs the questions, question against intuitionists or intuitionism, uh, anti-realist positions that don't see mathematical numbers as, as real abstract objects, um, or even realist conceptions that, that don't uh, say that all mathematical concepts have to translate into a real-world correlate, correlate or something like that. So they're, they're just begging the question on this. And it's it's important to note, just to give the the, the world-famous mathematician, the, the most famous mathematician of the 20th century was David Hilbert. And even he said this, knowing the practical usefulness and knowing the logical consistency of uh, axiomatic set theory and infinite set theory there, he says, look, quote-unquote, no one shall be able to drive us from the paradise that Cantor, George Cantor, had crea has created for us. 
But by the same token, it has to be admitted the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the actual infinite to play is solely that of an idea. So even David Hilbert acknowledges this distinction that sure the actual infinite works in the theoretical realm of mathematics within certain rules or axiomatic um, theories and that sort of thing and it may even have some real world practical usefulness but that does not translate to saying that the actual infinite exists in nature it just does not it's totally irrational to believe that um, and sort of following up on David Hilbert's, another famous mathematician, Ludwig Wittgenstein, responded to Hilbert's quote there and said, look, I, I wouldn't even dream of trying to drive anyone from this quote-unquote paradise, that, as you call it. Instead, I would rather do something quite different. I would try to show you that it is not a paradise at all, but entails utter chaos and contradiction so that you'll leave of your own accord. Um, so... You can see the, these world-famous uh, mathematicians are recognizing the point actual infinities do not exist in reality. It's not feasible uh, or broadly logically possible for them to exist, uh, even if it's strictly logically possible within certain axioms or rules. And really the way that most logicians and mathematicians have shown the absurdity of the actual infinite being translated into the real world is through the use of various thought experiments. And, and there have been multiple ones uh, over time. Really the most famous one is known as Hilbert's Hotel, given by that famous uh, mathematician David Hilbert, who's uh, a world's expert on, on the actual infinite. Um, he knew... he knew what he was talking about at that time. He developed this uh, Hilbert's Hotel thought experiment to show the metaphysically contradictory and inherently paradoxical nature of an actual infinite if translated into the real world. And so basically his his example uh, goes along the lines of, look, he invites us, let's, let's just imagine for the sake of argument, an ordinary hotel with a finite number of rooms. Now let's pretend all those rooms are full. Uh, a new guest shows up and says, hey, I'd like a room. Um, and the manager asks, say, I'm sorry, all the rooms are full. Uh, go away and come back again when, when I have a vacancy. Beautiful, everyone understands that. that that's pretty simple. But then Hilbert says, okay, well, let's, instead of imagining a finite hotel with a finite number of rooms, let's imagine the infinite hotel uh, it has an infinite number of rooms and further let's pretend that it's fully occupied it has an infinite number of guests actually infinite number of guests in those actual infinite number of rooms and a new guest shows up and says hey I'd like a room please in this case instead of the manager saying get lost and come back when I have a vacancy he says no problem I'll make a vacancy for you and he moves guest one into room two room guest two into uh, room three, and so on and so forth, out to infinity. Bada boom, bada bing, he's got room number one open for that new guest. He's just added an additional person to an actual infinite number of people. Um, so, yep, th this is how uh, it works. Infinite set theory works. This is how it works in uh, mathematics there. But it gets even more uh, weird because 
let's suppose that an infinite number of new guests show up to this infinitely booked uh, hotel, uh, infinitely occupied hotel. Uh, once again, the manager says, not a problem. I can add an actual infinity to an actual infinity. Um, all I have to do is move guests uh, from room one into room two, move the guests from room two into room four, move the guests from room three into room six, and so on and so forth, out to infinity. There you go. I now have all the odd-numbered rooms freely available to accommodate this actual infinity of new guests, and yet I, I still have the same number of actual infinite number of guests that I had before in the even-numbered rooms. So you can add an infinite, an, in, an actual infinite to an actual infinite and still be logically coherent and it still works mathematically. Um, I, I think this alone, just imagining this being feasible in the real world, uh, a hotel like this in the real world is utterly absurd. But on paper, it works, mathematically speaking. You can add an actual infinite to an, to an actual infinite and arrive at the number of the same number, actual infinite number of guests, uh, that LF null, which is a, a real number. But here's where it breaks down. So remember I mentioned um, axiomatic set theory. There are certain axioms or rules. So one of those rules is you can only add or multiply um, when, you come, when it comes to what's called transfinite math. So transfinite just means beyond finite numbers. You're dealing with actual infinite, infinities. If you violate those, if you, you, you are not by definition allowed to subtract or divide because if you do, contradictions inevitably ensue and proving that this concept is not possible. So to illustrate this using Hilbert's Hotel, what would happen if the guests started to check out? Remember, in a real hotel, you have nothing preventing guests from leaving uh, if they want to. So you subtraction is a logical part of a feasible infinite hotel or an actual infinity. Now, you know, suppose all of the guests in all of the odd numbered rooms checked out negative one, negative three, uh, five, so on, all the way up to infinity. All of the odd numbered guests, an actual infinite number of guests check out and have left the hotel. But by the same token, even though an actual infinite number of guests, a left null number of guests have left the hotel, an actual infinite of guests, a left null number of guests remain in the hotel in the even numbered rooms. So you have an actual infinity, a left null minus an actual infinity equals actual infinity. So a left null minus a left null equals a left null. Uh, that's pretty absurd. Um, but now let's pretend, so you, you might think, oh, okay, well you can play these tricks all the time and you just get out to the same thing. You, you get these consistent answers all the time. But that's not true because actually let's let's pretend instead of all of the odd numbered rooms checking out, let's pretend everybody starting from room four all the way out to infinity checks out. So you have an actual infinity, a left null, number of guests checking out just like you did before, a left null minus a left null. But this in this case, you arrive with the answer three. You only have three guests. You don't have an actual infinity number of guests left. That's absurd. It, it, you get That's logically contradictory. So in, in the first case where the odd numbered guests are checking out, we have a left null minus a left null equals a left null. But in the second case where everybody from room four out to infinity checks out, we have a left null minus a left null equals three. 
logically contradictory. This, this hotel cannot really exist, and that's why Hilbert's Hotel illustrates the utter absurdity of postulating a, um, an, a, an actual infinite in reality. Uh, essentially, the thought experiment illustrates this logical contradiction by assuming, by assuming two fundamental mathematical principles that are self-evident. So the first one is, look, there are not more things in a multitude or, or a set, um, say the, the set of numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, uh, than there is in another multitude if there is a one-to-one -one correspondence of their members. So if I have a set 1, 2, 3, 4, and another set 1, 2, 3, 4, those sets are identical. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence of the numbers in those sets. Um, and there's not more things in one set versus another. They have the exact same number of members in the set. They have four numbers. And the second principle at play here is there are more things in a set than there are in another one, two, three, four, in, than there are in another set if that other set, one, two, three, is a proper subset of S, of, of the original set. So again, remember one, that's obviously true. If you have a set one, two, three, four, and another set one, two, three, the second set of one, two, three is a proper subset of the original set. Self-evident, obviously true. But yet atheists and skeptics are forced to deny one of these self-evident, obviously true mathematical principles when it comes to transfinite math in order to make the actual infinite coherent and not contradictory in any way um, because otherwise as we saw we'll, we'll have the case where we have identical quantities minus identical quantities yielding non-identical uh, um, uh, results or quantities in the case where we have a left null minus left null equals a left null and at the same time a left null minus a left null equals three and you can you can get and in all of the results if, if you have all of the people from room five check out then you'd have a left null minus left null equals four you'd have four yes left over so this is just absurd and, and this thought experiment really highlights the the difference between these principles and in one way or another uh skeptics in order to make the transfinite math work have to deny one uh one of these principles one or more of these principles uh, to avoid the obvious logical contradiction, and I would just say it doesn't make sense um, to to say that. Um, and and you can read about those strategies. Uh, I write about them in my book on my blog site, which is for free. The the chapter right up there. Um, but just before moving on from this uh, this issue, I did want to mention that there is another argument that people will. Uh, try to say, well, well look, um, transfinite, uh, the actual infinite must exist in reality, it must be feasible. Maybe maybe it does lead to these contradictions and stuff like that, but that's just uh, the fault of our own finitude, our, our brains are, aren't wired that way or something like that. And they'll try to argue, look, the potential infinite presupposes the actual infinite. Um, people like Rudy Rucker and Richard uh, Sarabji, uh, they've tried to argue this way but it, it doesn't work so in, in the first place their their objections off base because look the the property of being potentially infinite divisible infinitely divisible for example so you know you have a, an infinite num potentially infinite number of points between the one centimeter and the two centimeter mark on a ruler right you have the 1.5 the 1.25 the 1.7 uh, 
all the and an, a potentially infinite number of divisions you can make between those those two points between one and two but the property of being composed of an infinite number of points where divisions can potentially be made they don't exist until you actually draw those those lines the 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 whole is conceptually prior to um, any divisions that one makes on them. So you can only ever make a potential infinite number of divisions. You would never actually have an actual infinite number of divisions between the numbers one and two on, on a ruler or the one centimeter mark and the two, two centimeter mark. So this is uh, basically this objection or this argument commits a logical, fallacia, uh, logical fallacy basically doing a modal operator shift uh, where you know they're inferring from the proposition that possibly there is some point at which x is divided and then they're going to the unwarranted proposition that there is in fact a, a point at which x is or has actually been divided and, and that's why this argument fails you can't make that leap um, but there, there was that second aspect that's really important again a lot of skeptics will say, yeah, but these contradictions just emerge, number one, because we are finite. We just can't understand. So it's not really contradictory, but we think it is. And a second objection related to that is they'll say, well, these contradictions are inherent to the hotels or the, the objects being used to illustrate the actual infinite, not to actual infinity itself, not to actual infinities themselves in reality. Um, so... I would just respond to that. That's totally ridiculous. So these world's experts, David Hilbert and, and all mathematicians, basically, we know a lot about transfinite math. We know a lot about actual infinities. And these examples, there's nothing inherent to, about a hotel that entails these logical contradictions or, or to any of the other thought experiments about actual, about showing the absurdity of actual infinities that's logically contradictory. It's perfectly conceivable to imagine people going into a hotel and checking out of a hotel. So that means that we know, based on what we positively know about actual inf infinities, we know they are inherently contradictory. And it, it is the actual infinities themselves that are resulting in these co logically contradictory results. And and therefore, that's how we argue that the actual infinity is 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 uh, not coherent. It's not possible for it to exist in reality. Um, so, so yeah, on this premise, I would say I have 100% knowledge that logical contradictions are inherent in the concept of actual infinities themselves, as illustrated through these thought experiments. Um, and certainly, the minimal case is 100% proven true as well that any actual infinities that are relevant to these thought experiments, they are definitely logically contradictory. So, yeah, I think either way, if you want to say that actual infinities in general, just all of them are logically logically contradictory, I think that works. Uh, or if you just want to go for my qualified minimal premise, it obviously works. I mean, obviously any actual infinities that are relevant or analogous to the thought experiments like Hilbert's Hotel obviously those are logically incoherent and therefore not possible. Um, so, so yeah, I think we have a 100% proven um, in terms of the logical soundness of this first premise. Let's move on to the second premise then. The second premise being an infinite temporal regress of events is an actual infinite. 
Uh, and I qualify premise two by saying, again, it's an actual infinite that is specifically relevant to the contradictory thought experiments we saw above. Just before we get into assessing the warrant for this, uh, just a quick uh, definition, clarification on, the, on a definition here. I speak of events in this premise, a temporal regress of events. So, so what is an event? So basically by an event here, I'm, I'm simply referring to any change that occurs in the universe over a specified duration of time. So it, it's important to note here, um, because there are some objections to the notion of an event, I'm not purposefully not defining an event uh, as something that is instantaneous. There are no instantaneous events. There are no instants at which an event occurs, temporally, temporal instance that is. Uh, nor are there any infinitely slow or changeless events that can occur. So this premise is saying, look, every single event will take place over a specified non-zero, non-instant duration of time uh, to varying intervals or dura uh, of um, duration of time. And it's, it's important to know, you know, look, this definition of event makes the question of whether the temporal regress of past events had a beginning point, like at the standard Big Bang model, the point of singularity, uh, known as the first temporal instant. That's entirely a moot point. This this premise doesn't assume or care either way if there is a, uh, a certain point or not. Um, no one cares. Uh, it, this premise will apply. It, it just speaks of events in the way that I've defined it. So. Pay attention to that definition. That is a, a relevant definition that avoids unnecessary con controversy with atheists and skeptics. Basically, the, the question here that's at stake is whether or not there was a previous temporal event or interval of non-zero temporal duration that was not preceded by a, a prior event of equal temple, temporal duration. Now, in demonstrating the truth of this premise, um, or my nuanced version of premise number two, where I've, I've kind of qualified William Lane Craig's version of the argument, there are two aspects that need to be established. So number one, that an infinite temporal regress of past events is an actual infinite, <clears throat> is an actual infinite, and two, that the contradictory thought experiments we explored in premise number one, like Hilbert's Hotel, are in fact relevant to an infinite temporal regress of past events. Now, in terms of uh, aspect number one, you might think, look, this is just self-evidently true. How can you possibly deny that uh, the notion of an infinite temporal regress of past events constitutes an actual infinite? It seems like a no-brainer. Uh, it's obviously true. Um, and I would definitely agree on the B theory of time. If you would remember, this, this argument is time theory independent. Whether you take an A theory of time or a B theory of time doesn't matter. Um, so if you're a B theorist, then you have to agree. It is necessary. If you think that the creation or the universe uh, has a the B theory of time or the static or tenseless theory of time that applies to it, then yeah, it, it's just self-evident that, uh, look, there, there's an actual infinite series of temporal events designated as past, present, and future. And these are all instances that exist. They, they have simultaneously uh, exist in eternal ontological parity. It's kind of like a four-dimensional spatio-temporal block, like a wooden block, past, present, and future with like little divisions on it. They, they all exist at once. So all those moments would constitute in a, in a past eternal 
universe, an, an actual infinite would be entailed by that. But really the problem comes in, if you're like me, really the problem comes in if you're like me and you adopt the A theory of time, a dynamic or tense theory of time, then one might deny that an infinite or eternal uh, temporal regress of past events does not constitute an actual infinite. Why? Well, because on the A theory of time, uh, all event, all the temporal events, past, present, and future, that we, we label relative to our position, past, present, and future, they don't exist on simultaneous ontological parity, right? Only the present moment exists, only the present exists, ontologically speaking. The past existed in the past. It, it, ex it came into existence and then passed out of existence. Uh, the future, likewise, it doesn't really exist. All those future temporal events don't exist yet. They will exist in the future when we get to that moment, when they become present to those people relative at that time. Um, so in this way, look, the number of past and future temporal events is really zero. There's only one, a finite number uh, of events, and that's the present temporal moment. So it's argued, look, on an eighth year time, an infinite, temp an infinite or eternal temporal regress of past events isn't really postulating an actual infinite at all. It's, it's postulating a finite, just the present temporal event. But unfortunately for the, the atheist here, uh, the skeptic who adopts an a-theory of time here, I don't think this gets you off the hook of avoiding an actual infinite, because that is still entailed. Even if the past and future moment, temporal events do not have the same ontological status or parity as the present, it still is nonetheless the case that all those past events did exist and passed out of existence. They are events that uh, occurred. And just the fact that they don't, they don't no longer exist doesn't mean that they didn't exist in the past. So, you know, take it, take it this way. Definitely there's no problem in counting and enumerating the number of past presidents or the number of wars that have happened in history. Uh, hypothetically, you could count them up to LF null, up to the actual infinite the, represented by the symbol LF null as a number. And it would be the same with temporal regress of events. Um, Thomas Aquinas, he gave a great example uh, of a blacksmith working from eternity past, producing one hammer after another. And as each hammer, uh, as each of his hammers break down, he builds the, a new one. Uh, and he throws the old hammer, the old broken hammers on the floor. So in this example, obviously we have an actual infinite number of hammers being used. Uh, broken and then discarded by the blacksmith. Um, so it's an actual infinity of events. But let's pretend instead of just throwing his broken hammers on the floor, he destroys the old hammers first and then creates his new hammer. Well, we still have an actual infinity being entailed, even though he's destroying the previous broken hammers by fire. It's totally irrelevant that those old hammers have been destroyed because an actual infinity of events still comes, is still being postulated to come into existence. It's still being actualized uh, and would therefore qualify as an actual infinite, uh, regardless of whether the hammers don't get, dis are just thrown on the floor and continue to exist in their broken state, or if they're totally destroyed by the blacksmith before he creates his new hammer. Either way, an actual infinity of events, and in, uh, in the form of an actual infinity number of hammers being created and then destroyed, and then they get subsequently destroyed before the, the next one comes into existence. Um, 
you know, doesn't matter whether the, ha the old hammers get destroyed or not, there's an actual infinite number of hammers there. In the same way, uh, with temporal events, there's an actual infinity number of events that can be enumerated up to a left null. Um, whether they come into existence and stay stay into existence or whether they come into existence and get destroyed like with the hammer example there's still an actual infinity number of hammers and likewise there's an actual infinity number of temporal events in, a, in an infinite past regress so uh, an actual infinity is entailed by by this notion so aspect number one is 100% proven true. Um, I, I think that it is self-evident, regardless of whether you adopt a B theory of time or an A theory of time. And, and this objection on the part of A theorists does not get you off the hook of avoiding the actual infinite. What about aspect number two of this premise? So aspect number two, you'll remember, is, okay, well, great. Is the actual infinite that's being entailed by an infinite temporal regress of events is that relevant to the contradictory thought experiments, uh, which which allowed us to say in premise one that actual infinites cannot exist; they're not possible to exist in reality. Uh, is is an infinite temporal regress of events relevant to those contradictory thought experiments? And I think on this front, it obviously is, because think about it. Look, we we can easily enumerate. Uh, just like we did with Hilbert's Hotel, we enumerated the guests in the rooms, we can enumerate past events. And uh, obviously then the logical absurdities will inevitably arise from entailing an actual infinity of enumerated events or enumerated things. Um, just by way of example, look, the, the number of events prior to the present prior to the present is an actual infinite number of events represented by the number LF null. And that would be identical to the number of prior events that have occurred uh, prior to any other point in the past. So the number of uh, prior, pa uh, prior past events, temporal events, prior to the present would be a left null. But if the universe is an actual infinite number of past eternal events, we can again, it would be a left, if we said how many of temporal pa past temporal events existed prior to yesterday, Again, a left null, an actual infinite, represented by the number left null. Um, so we're, we're encountering the same problems that we got in um, the Hilbert's Hotel, regardless of the fact that we're talking about temporal events rather than rooms and guests. I, again, by doing this, by enumerating these temporal events, uh, we would, there would be the, the same number of odd-numbered past events as the total past events total. We would have a, a left null number of odd versus even events uh, versus the combined total of odd and even combined. We can also envision potentially subtracting through our uh, certain past events from occurring, you know, take out World War II events or pretend we can, using our modal evaluating faculties, we can conceive of the event of uh, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand uh, not taking place and we can subtract that past event from our entire series of temporal events in our history. So yeah, it's it's possible, subtraction is possible in terms and relevant to um, a, a series, an infinite series of temporal events as well. So yeah, and, and once that's possible, the same logical contradictions arise whereby we're subtracting identical quantities minus identical quantities and they yield non-identical uh, results or quantities. So yeah, uh, again, clearly the this 
an infinite series of temporal events is relevant to, is, is an actual infinite, and it is relevant to the absurdities uh, that amount, that uh, result from actual infinities as entailed in our thought experiments that we addressed in premise one. Um, I'm going to side on the, I think it's proven beyond reasonable doubt. Um, I will give some time, some amount of doubt on this. So I, I'm going to assign in 95.01%, which is my arbitrary definition. Anything 95.01% or more proven true is my arbitrary definition of being proven beyond reasonable doubt. Um, so I think premise number two is, in fact, proven beyond reasonable doubt. And even the atheist philosopher Graham Opie, um, when he was confronted with the overwhelming force of the various reductio ad absurdum arguments um, that result from uh, thinking about, you know, the, these thought experiments and the actual infinite uh, actually obtaining in the real world, uh, even he admits, yeah, it's, he, he simply bites the bullet and he says, look, yes, these absurd situations are just what we would expect if they were physical infinities. He doesn't deny that they that they are just inevitable um, to result uh, when you postulate an actual infinity existing in our real physical universe and that sort of thing. But he just basically turns his brain off and gives up and says, "Yeah, I, I don't know. We we would just expect that to happen." Come on, guys, that that isn't being rational. That that isn't being a a person who's really seeking after truth, is it? So yeah, that that does it for the first philosophical argument premises number one and two so premise number one was a hundred percent proven true in my my estimation you might assign a, a different normative probability value that's that's fine but i think i've established that it's really strong it, it should be uh in the high 90s at, at the very least on your end but assign your own normative probabilities you i presented my reasons for that and, and see what you make of them Premise number two, I, gave, I assigned a 95.01% probability. Um, so multiplying the, the results of those two premises together, 100% times 95.01 equals 95.01%. Proven that the universe began to exist based on the truth of our first philosophical argument from the impossibility of an actual infinite existing in reality. Okay, so at this point, I'm. This is much longer than I uh, originally expected. So I'm. I'm going to take a break, and instead of doing uh, part one with both uh, the two philosophical arguments for in favor of uh, the fact that the universe began to exist and is therefore contingent, I'm going to stop here uh, with the first philosophical argument, and then in a part two video, I'm going to post up the second philosophical argument that proves. Um, that the universe began to exist, namely the, the argument from the impossibility of forming an actual infinite through uh, successive ad addition, adding one thing or one element after another. Um, and then part three uh, will be the scientific evidence, the inductive argument that the universe began to exist. Um, and then following that, part four will deal with premise two of my overall cosmological argument and part uh, five will finish off the series with premise three uh, of my cosmological argument. Uh, and then after that, I'll do the addendum show for Chris State, uh, are making philosophical arguments about God's relationship to time. Uh, so that's, yeah, that should be our plan. All right, have a great week, everybody, and uh, look forward to part two coming out uh, pretty soon. Okay, take care.